Hello and welcome to What the Heck, a show that looks at mysteries on the unexplained. This part usually comes after the opening music, but it's slightly different at the moment. After a busy period, I got very behind with the podcast. I don't want to end it prematurely like I did last year, though. To catch up with the original schedule, I'm going to be recording some double feature episodes that include a main episode and a creature feature in them. Each episode will have a longer title so I can keep up with my episode numbers, and these shouldn't last too long. So, enjoy the longer episodes for the time being. Let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to What the Heck, a show that looks at mysteries and the unexplained. Every week we look at something unexplained, telling a story or describing it, and then look at the theories surrounding it. I'm your host, Glenn, and I can't give you the answers to these unexplained things, because I don't know what they are. I'm just here to give you the information to decide for yourself. All research is done as academically as I can, and references are given at the end of the episode. This week's episode is a history episode. We're looking at Greek fire. In the 7th century CE, the Byzantine Empire utilised a weapon of destruction unlike any seen before. In fact, this weapon has never really been seen since. This weapon was Greek fire. An incendiary weapon able to shoot flames in a continuous jet that was almost impossible to extinguish. Developed for naval warfare, Greek fire changed the game for Greece. Its exact origin isn't really clear, but many believe that it was invented by a Syrian engineer called Kalinikos. Not much is known about him, but it's assumed that he brought his invention to the Byzantine emperor at some point during the 7th century. The emperor took the invention and started its use for political and military purposes. Some people don't believe the story of Kalinikos and believe that the Greek fire was a heavily guarded secret that had been passed down by Byzantine military leaders and scientists. Greek fire was a liquid weapon. It was only ever utilised by the Byzantine Empire, which was the surviving part of the Greek-speaking eastern part of the Roman Empire. In some documents, the weapon is referred to as liquid fire or sea fire. Byzantine ships would carry the heated and pressurised liquid, hooked up to a tube called a siphon. If these ships made contact with the enemy, they would shoot at them to set the enemy ships on fire from a safe distance. Doing this would not only throw out the liquid, but allegedly the siphon would make a roaring sound and produce large amounts of smoke, something that has been attributed to that of a dragon. The liquid was able to stick to whatever it touched, including the surface of the ocean. If it was in the water, it continued to burn, preventing the enemy from dousing the flames. Apparently, water wouldn't allow it to be put out anyway. It was only extinguished with a single bizarre mixture, vinegar, sand, and old urine. As I said before, the formula for this weapon was a closely guarded secret. 
Even when the enemies of the Byzantine Empire managed to get hold of it, they weren't able to recreate it. This seems to be why the formula was lost to time, though. It was only known by the family of Kalinikos and the Byzantine Emperor. It was handed down through the generations, but that clearly stopped at some point. If we look at the reason for the invention of Greek fire, we need to go back to Kalinikos. He was a Jew from Syria. He'd fled Syria to escape the Arab invasion. After his escape, he came up with a formula to prevent something like that happening again. The Greek fire was first used to defend Constantinople against Arab naval attacks. It proved so effective at repelling enemy fleets that it eventually played a major role in ending the first Arab siege of Constantinople in 678 CE. It was then used successfully in the second Arab siege of Constantinople from 717 to 718 CE, this time causing huge damage to the Arab navy. Due to its success, the weapon continued to be used for hundreds of years. This wasn't only an outside conflict with the Arabs, Russians and Bulgars, a tribal confederation that had settled in the Balkans, but in civil wars as well. It played a significant role in the preservation of the Byzantine Empire. Some historians go as far as to argue that Greek fire was instrumental in protecting Western civilization from a massive invasion. That's not the end though. Greek fire was best known for being used at sea, but it didn't only get used there. Byzantine Emperor Leo VI the Wise used it on land. In his 10th century treatise, Tactica, he mentioned a handheld version of the siphon called the Cairo siphon. It was basically an ancient version of a flamethrower. It was reportedly used in sieges for both offence and defence. Some authors of the time suggested it was even used on land itself to disrupt marching armies. On top of that, the Byzantines were known to fill clay jars with Greek fire, so they would function similarly to modern-day grenades. The formula of such a destructive weapon has been lost to time, though, and nobody has been able to recreate it. What was Greek fire made of? Greek fire was used in the 7th century by the Byzantine Empire. Its formula was lost to time. What do people think it was? This week, we have an account of the partial composition of Greek fire. Anna Komnini, a Byzantine princess, wrote about the weapon in her text, the Alexiad. She said, This fire is made by the following arts. From the pine and certain such evergreen trees, inflammable resin is collected. This is rubbed with sulphur and put into tubes of reed and is blown by men using it with violent and continuous breath. Then in its same manner, it meets the fire on the tip and catches light and falls like a fiery whirlwind on the faces of the enemies. From this description, we can see that Greek fire is made from pine resin with sulphur. But that's not everything that goes into it. Attempts to recreate it have failed. So, this report from the Alexiad is obviously only a partial recipe. There must be more. 
Some people suggest petroleum to be a possible ingredient, but this has also proved to be incorrect. Attempts to recreate it using petroleum have failed. Some people theorise that quicklime has to be part of the mixture, due to its ability to catch fire in water. This is yet to be confirmed, but could be possible. Someone looked at the formula, positing three theories. The first one was gunpowder. This would mean that the Western world had access to saltpetre, a primitive version of modern gunpowder, in the 7th century. This idea is possible, but the composition seems a little off. The next theory was ammonium nitrate. This acts as an oxidizer, causing combustion. This could work, but ammonium nitrate disperses in water, making it go cold. This couldn't possibly work. The third theory was napalm. They're similar compounds and it's entirely possible. Napalm was famously used in the Vietnam War to destroy the jungle, although it was carried by the wind and did much more damage. The reaction is the same regardless of the composition of napalm. It's also able to stick to anything it comes into contact with. Napalm containing white phosphorus will continue to burn even underwater as well, meaning that this is a possibility. However, napalm is often a gelatinous liquid, and Greek fire is described just as a liquid. One theory suggests that Kalinikos had discovered calcium phosphide. This is created by boiling bones in urine using a sealed vessel. When it contacts water, it releases phosphine, which ignites on its own. However, it can't be this because extensive experiments have been conducted on this and have failed to create the intensity of Greek fire. Most scholars do agree that petroleum was in fact the main ingredient. The Byzantines had access to crude oil from the wells around the Black Sea and various places in the Middle East. The 6th century historian Procopius recorded that naphtha, or crude oil, was known to the Greeks as Median oil, which explains why some people called Greek fire Median fire. The problem we face with a weapon like this is that its destructive capabilities are not something to be taken lightly. It is a mystery how it was created though, and I'd love to be there if it was ever solved. We'd just have to be responsible with the knowledge. The information from this episode came from Ancient Origins, All That's Interesting and Heritage Daily. The theories from this episode came from the previous articles, Chemistry is Life and Wikipedia. References and links are posted on social media if you want to take a look. The link tree is available in the episode description, so you can go to your preferred social media or listen on your preferred platform. Patreon is still unchanged, with a £3 tier if you want to support me, but I have nothing to put on there yet. Suggestions, personal stories and corrections can be sent through the email in the episode description too.
Hello and welcome to What the Hex Creature Feature, where we look at folklore and cryptids. Every Saturday we look at the history of a creature before even describing it and looking at theories of what the creature might be. I'm your host Glenn, and I can't give you the answers to these unexplained things, because I don't know what they are. I'm just here to give you the information to decide for yourself. All research is done as academically as I can, and references are given at the end of the episode. This week's episode is a folklore episode. We're looking at the behemoth. This week, we're back in religious folklore. The behemoth features in both Jewish and Christian religious texts. Specifically, Job chapter 40. This creature is actually part of a pair described by God to Job in this part of the text. I'll get to that bit later. The book of Job deals with unmerited suffering and surrounds a man named Job, who was pious, trying to understand all of the bad things happening to him. The central portion of this book involves a poetic debate that follows the framework of an ancient legend originating outside of Palestine and Israel. In the book of Job, Satan acts as a test, discerning whether Job's piety is related to his prosperity. Satan shows Job the loss of his possessions, his children and his health to test him. Job refuses to blame God. Three of Job's friends arrive to comfort him, and the poetic debate begins. This section of the book probes into the meaning of Job's suffering and how best he should respond to each situation. It consists of three separate speech cycles containing Job's disputes with each friend and his conversations with God. Job ultimately proclaims innocence, stating how unwarranted his suffering is and his friends argue that the suffering is punishment for unnamed sins. Job is unsatisfied with this explanation and is convinced of his faithfulness and righteousness. He turns to God, who begins a conversation with Job. This conversation resolves most of Job's issues, but doesn't solve the problem of his suffering. Their conversation gives Job trust in the purpose of God's will, even if they remain mysterious and confusing to man. During Job's conversation with God, he listens as God explains the greatness of his creations. Job had questioned the purpose of his own suffering, and God responds by bringing up the behemoth. God explains that the behemoth was made alongside man. It's said that the creature ranks first among the works of God, and the passage says, yet its maker can approach it with his sword, likely meaning that only God can harm it. From the passage, it seems like wild animals are friendly to the behemoth and play nearby to the creature. It's not even scared of a large river, with the passage stating that it is secure even if the river Jordan might surge against its mouth. It is also said to be wild, with God asking directly if anyone could capture its gaze or trap and pierce its nose, something done to cattle to control them or to wean calves. In the next chapter of the book of Job, God describes the Leviathan, 
the other half of the pair. The Leviathan often appears alongside the Behemoth in later texts and other appearances, although sometimes they are unrelated creatures that appear in the same media. In the Bible, the Behemoth and the Leviathan make a second appearance in the New Testament. In the book of Revelation, the final book of the Bible, and full of tales of the Apocalypse. It only gets a brief mention when the book begins to mention animals. Only animals known to exist are listed, with the behemoth among them. It doesn't come into play at any point, it just gets a mention. But this differs from later Jewish texts. In later Jewish Apocrypha, the behemoth is attributed to the primal creature of Earth. Leviathan comes back as part of this group, as the primal creature of water. In these texts, a creature called Ziz joins to make a trio, symbolising the primal creature of the sky. These apocrypha are part of a rabbinic legend that suggests that a great battle will take place between Behemoth and Leviathan. God is supposed to strike them both down, creating canopies for the righteous, who will feast on the meat of the creatures. Here's the fun part. As time has gone on, the behemoth has undergone a transformation from one of God's chosen creatures to a demonic creature. None of these choices are considered as canon in mainstream Christian denominations, though. Starting with Thomas Aquinas, who claimed the behemoth as a known animal in the late 1200s. He also made some bizarre comparisons suggesting that God's description of the behemoth was a metaphor for the devil. He suggested that the name behemoth, which roughly translates to beast, although Aquinas says animal in his explanation, gave the creature a level of pre-eminence because of its assumed size. He later went on to explain that the story of Job explained God's works crea of creation and Satan was one of the things God created first or even perhaps because Satan was supposed to be more excellent than the other creations. In 1818, this idea was taken up by French occultist Jacques-Auguste Simon Colin de Plancy. He wrote the Infernal Dictionary, a book of demonology. In this, de Plancy says that the behemoth is a heavy and stupid demon whose strength lies in its loins. His domain is attributed to the sin of gluttony and pleasures of the belly. He suggests that some believe the creature to be a butler or cupbearer for other demons, and states that Jean Bodin, a political philosopher from the 1500s, believed that the behemoth was an Egyptian pharaoh who had persecuted the Jews. But de Plancy didn't stop here. He continued to name drop in his works on the behemoth, like Urbain Grandier, a French Catholic priest in the 17th century who was burned at the stake after being accused of witchcraft. He also talks of Pierre de Lanca, a French judge, who said that the behemoth was a monstrous animal that has the form of all the grossest beasts, swearing that the behemoth could disguise itself as a dog, elephant, fox or wolf. De Plancy then speaks of Johan Weir, a Dutch physician known for his book called on the tricks of demons in 1563, referring to him as Weirus, 
and an oracle on all the concerned demons. He says that Weir had mentioned in one of his books that the behemoth or the elephant could be the devil in disguise, linking back to the idea that Thomas Aquinas had. De Plancy eventually adds to the story of the behemoth, saying it lives in a space with 1,000 mountains, eating the hay of the mountains every day. He suggests that God had originally created a female behemoth, ultimately killing her because he couldn't let the behemoth reproduce, and making the suggestion that Jewish people would swear by the flesh of the behemoth, explaining that they would make a great roast of his flesh and linking back to the Apocrypha. With all of this information, should we look at the description of the behemoth? The behemoth is a piece of religious folklore found in Judaism and Christianity. It's described as a creation of God, but over the years it took on a more devilish form. What is it supposed to look like? The description of the behemoth in Job goes like this. Behold behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold his strength is in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs bars of iron. He is one of the first works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. For the mountains yield food for him, where all the wild beasts play. Under the lotus plants he lies, in the covert of the reeds and in the marsh. For his shade, the lotus tree covers him, the willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. He is confident, though Jordan rushes against his maw. Can one take him with hooks, or pierce his nose with a snare? That's a lot of words for not a huge amount of description. What we do get from it is that the tail can get stiff like a tree. It is very muscular, with tough, hollow bones and tough limbs. It can sleep under a lotus tree, which isn't an incredibly large tree, suggesting that the behemoth isn't as huge as some may believe. But that's not the only description this week. With the addition of demon to the list of things that the behemoth is, we got a new look at it. The infernal dictionary entry came with an image of the creature. In this one, it looks like an elephant on two legs, with hands instead of front feet. The only difference in its look here is a severely distended stomach, probably to match its given domain of gluttony. In other depictions, the behemoth is often more akin to a hippopotamus or like a bull. In the Final Fantasy series, it appears as a powerful, muscular, cat-like enemy with large horns and sharp claws that often appears as a boss encounter. That's really all for the descriptions. Should we take a look at some theories of what it might be?
The behemoth has changed a lot through the years, but it cannot escape its beginnings in religion. With a vague description in religious texts, what do people think it is really? We need to remember that this is religious folklore. Usually, when this happens, there are only the real and not real theories. The behemoth allows for some speculation due to its involvement in an explanation from God and its appearance in the book of Revelation in the list of animals. Because of this, there are more theories to look at today. Our first theory is that the behemoth is not real. The behemoth has not been seen outside of the books of Job and Revelation. It stands to reason that a huge lack of evidence contributes to this theory. With all the images we have of Earth from above, it would make sense that we would have seen something described as huge. On the other hand, we haven't physically explored the whole planet yet. If the behemoth weren't a huge beast, then it makes sense that we haven't seen it. Some young Earth creationists believe that every animal, including dinosaurs, were created on the sixth day of creation. They believe that the behemoth was some kind of sauropod, a large herbivorous dinosaur known for its large size and long tail and neck. This theory is actually based off of old views that suggest that sauropods were semi-aquatic creatures and were believed to match the description of the behemoth in Job. They also base this theory off the line that says the behemoth's tail is like a cedar tree, arguing that only a large dinosaur would possess one of those. Young Earth creationists are somewhat drawn to cryptozoology, focusing on searching for creatures that haven't been proven to exist, in the hopes that it would prove their very literal interpretation of the Bible, simply by finding a dinosaur alive and well. As we've seen in previous episodes, a dinosaur theory is often hard to make sense of due to changes in climate and the extinction event that wiped them off the face of the Earth. As such, this theory is just as difficult to make sense of. By the time that humans appeared on the planet, dinosaurs had been extinct for almost 65 million years. So it wouldn't make sense to believe that Job had a dinosaur explained to him. As previously discussed, one theory suggests that the behemoth is an otherworldly creature, a demon. Thomas Aquinas and Jacques-Auguste Simon Colin de Plancy both suggest as much. Aquinas himself says it's the devil specifically, although his theory can be seen as a stretch for even theologians. De Plancy at least attributes a different demon to the behemoth, turning the beast into a demon in his description. This at least allows for more speculation than the Aquinas theory. If it were a demon though, why would God describe it to Job when trying to explain why it's impossible to understand his ways? It doesn't make too much sense to use a demon as an example. Something I discovered in the research for this is that the Hebrew word for move may actually mean extend. And the translation I found made that part of the passage makes. This leads some to believe that the tail in the passage is actually the behemoth's penis, which then begs the question of why God would describe that. The next line does mention that the power of the behemoth is in its loins, so it's not as much of a stretch as it may appear, but it doesn't explain what it is exactly. 
In the animal kingdom, we encounter a couple of animals that vaguely resemble the behemoth. We're talking about the elephant and the hippopotamus. Neither are mentioned in Revelation, which means that it could be either of them. Having said that though, the behemoth isn't really mentioned by name in the book of Revelation. There are two beasts mentioned, one on land and one in the sea, which are believed to be the behemoth and leviathan respectively. Regardless, the elephant and the hippopotamus only vaguely resemble the behemoth's description, with each fitting different criteria. It wouldn't be too much of a stretch to believe that either of these animals were, were what God was referring to, but if that were the case, wouldn't they be referred to by their actual names? Some Christians believe that the name behemoth and its translation from the Hebrew word for beasts actually means people who were arrogant or questioned God, making it a metaphorical creature. God had been known to call humans beasts when they did this, and it was exactly what Job is doing in the story. The theory here is that God was warning Job that his own beastly actions could be impossible for man to defeat, and not a creature or animal of giant size. The label of beast has the connotation of reckless stupidity and appears in scriptures more than once. Psalm 73 uses it when the psalmist loses faith in God, a word that is sometimes translated to behemoth. Nebuchadnezzar was transformed into an ox as punishment for his arrogance, linking back to the beginning of the passage. And in Daniel 4, people are threatened with being driven away to graze grass like the oxen, providing another link. However, we have to bring in the Leviathan once again. If the behemoth is a metaphor, why is it seen as a pseudo-sibling to the Leviathan? Is the Leviathan also a metaphor? I'll explore that one day, just not in this episode. That's it for the behemoth, one half of a pair of religious beasts. Is it real or metaphorical? That's for you to decide. The history and description from this week's creature came from Encyclopedia Britannica, the Mythos section of the Fandom Wiki, and the Sound of Heaven Church. The theories from this episode came from the previous articles, the Mythical Creatures Guide, and the Biblical Hermeneutics section of Stack Exchange. References and links are posted on social media if you want to take a look. The link tree is available in the episode description, so you can go to your preferred social media or listen on your preferred platform. Patreon is still unchanged, with the £3 here if you want to support me, but I have nothing to put on there yet. Suggestions, personal stories and corrections can be sent through the email in the episode description too.